The reading tonight is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 11. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience Inherit what has been promised. This is God's word. Uh, do keep that open. Uh, we need to stick very close to the text. It's an interesting one. Um, some debate. Some people get upset, I think, by um, Hebrews chapter 6. So let's pray for God's help as uh, we work through it together. Almighty God, you are a wonderful Father. And as a wonderfully kind and loving Father, you give us precisely what we need. You give us the encouragement that we need when we're flat and falling. You give us the rebukes that we need when we're straying from you. And so, Father, would we continue as we work our way through this book of Hebrews, hear what we need to hear. Father, please would your spirit be at work rebuking, challenging encouraging, building us up as is needed, so we're best equipped to understand and serve and love the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his great name. Amen. Now, that we've been saying that the book of Hebrews um, alternates, really, between wonderful words of assurance and uh, uh, expositions of the work of Jesus Christ and how good he is and how uh, he'll hold on to you. You have those on the one hand. And then 
we drift, we go from them to fairly direct and blunt warnings. And here you have one of the strongest warnings in the book in the middle here. And often we don't like warnings. It's kind of being human is we don't really enjoy them. So just in the simple things of life, we're driving a car and uh, the person in the seat next to you says, well, do watch out for that pothole. And you say, I know, I have seen it. I don't need your advice. We don't maybe say all of those things, but in our head, they're going through our heads. Or, or even more precisely, you know, oh, don't forget your passport if you're going on holiday. I don't. I'm just going to get it now. And, um, you know, you know, we don't, you know, because warnings are saying to us, you've not spotted something I have. Uh, you're doing something wrong and you need to change. And so, you know, they just make us, you know, prickle a little bit. But even, you know, really important ones. You know, I'm going to go for a swim. Look at the sea. It looks gorgeous. Don't go swimming in there. There are jellyfish that'll kill you. All right. Thank you very much. So, you know, I won't do that then. You know, it's a fairly significant warning. I'm a bit too young to die, I think. Um, so I don't want to do that just yet. You know, so warnings, they are of use to us. But we just need to understand as we look at a fairly blunt, stark, unpleasant warning... It's a bit of a poke, this passage, that none of us like it. Let's just get that out there as we begin. But in arenas of life, we need warnings often. We need them. Now, Hebrews has more on assurance than any other book of the Bible, it seems to me. More on come boldly. Jesus has got your hand. You just think of some of the things we've looked at already uh, in chapter 2. Jesus has got you by the hand. He'll take you to go to heaven. Jesus has gone ahead of you. He's blasted the way through there. Uh, we saw last time, come boldly to the throne of grace. You'll find there grace and mercy in your time of need. Uh, lots of the time in the book of Hebrews, you emphasize what we already have. You have come to Mount Zion. We'll get to that. Um, that is, you, you, you've kind of arrived. And yet at the same time, as well as these sort of firm words of assurance, it's probably the book also that has the bluntest, hardest warnings. You're on a pilgrimage. Don't die before you get to the end. Uh, we saw in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. And that background is very much uh, here at case, um, here, uh, the case here. So it struck me, in one sense, you can think of the book of Hebrews a little bit like this, particularly when it comes to the warnings. Uh, Imagine a young girl lost in a forest, and it is dark, and she just cannot see her way out. It's at night, lost in the forest, and she's scared. But then she starts to hear her daddy's voice, and daddy is calling from outside the forest, listen to me. Can you hear me? Yes, Daddy, I can hear you. Listen to me. If you just keep listening to my voice, I'll stay here. Keep walking towards my voice. And so she does. She starts walking towards him. But then, after a while, perhaps, you know, you're still there. Yes, Daddy, still walking towards After a while, she gets distracted. And so stops. And doesn't listen so clearly to Daddy's voice anymore. And therefore, drifts back in the forest and is not going to get out unless she listens to the voice of her father. And that is the repeated call of the book of Hebrews, really. Listen. Keep listening to Jesus. If you do, you'll have assurance. If you don't, well, you'll lose your assurance and you may well lose salvation in eternity. 
Now, we said also before, it's still going, uh, so in one sense, introduction, um, we said the context for this sermon, letter, is that the recipients, the Hebrews, very clear in chapter 10 and chapter 13, are being persecuted. And uh, they're being persecuted for being a Christian, so many of them are drifting back to Judaism, because Judaism is a state-authorized religion under the Roman Empire, so you won't get in trouble, you won't get in prison if you're a Jew, but you will if you're a Christian, so they're drifting back. And so the writer is writing to that sort, that group of people saying, don't give up, don't give up, keep going. A bit like the little girl again, she's walking to the forest and sort of gets a, a, a branch, slaps her in the face and maybe stumbles and twists her ankle a little bit because she can't see the hole and says, but daddy, this doesn't seem right. I keep getting slapped in the face. Just keep listening to me. Don't go your own way. Listen to my voice. That's the repeated call of the letter. The warnings of God the Father, generally, and in the book of Hebrews, are shouts of love. You've got to know that. The warnings, we've got a stark one here, of God the Father are shouts of love. I love you. Listen to my voice. Come to me. Repeatedly he's saying that. Now this passage, chapter 5, verse 11 to chapter 6, to chapter 6, verse 12, it's framed by the word sluggish. Now it's not obvious here, but it's the only two times this word, nethros, uh, gets used in the New Testament, and it's here, chapter 5, verse 11, chapter 6, verse 12, it's framing it, so uh, I don't know if you can see them. Literally, in chapter 5, verse 11, the writer says, it's hard to explain this to you because you are sluggish of hearing. And at the end, chapter 6, verse 12, we do not want you to become sluggish. That's the danger. You're sluggish of hearing, and you'll become so sluggish you'll give up the Christian faith. So really the call of this section is, don't be a slug. And we mildly giggle because who wants to be a slug? I had to do an exercise recently uh, for this thing, and uh, five adjectives. I had to give five adjectives to describe my mother, my father, my wife. It's quite an interesting exercise. It has enormous capacity to offend um, or encourage. But for their encouragement, if they even get around to listening to this, sluggish was not one of them. I think particularly for my wife, I described her as sluggish. There would be problems. Uh, it would be deeply unfair of me. And no, who wants to be called sluggish? Um, so just as a sort of vivid reminder, I'm going to leave our friend up here. Um, for the rest of the talk, because who wants to be a slug? I mean, they're nasty. I mean, I'm sure they're good for something, but I don't know what. Uh, I'm not a botanist, no, whatever. I'm no, um, uh, whatever they call called. What does someone who looks after slugs? Yeah, you don't want to hear what they're saying. Okay, no one here looks after slugs, because they're not nice. Okay, generally speaking, no one wants to be a slug. So don't be sluggish. Okay, so it breaks down like this. Uh, don't be sluggish hearers, 5 Lem to 6.3. Because it's impossible to restore those who fall away, 6.4 to 8. So, don't be sluggish. But fix your hope on Jesus, chapter 6, 9 to 12. Let's work through it. First then, don't be sluggish hearers. Chapter 5, verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 3. We said then, uh, verse 11, literally, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are sluggish of hearing. Now, this has already been a major theme of the book. 
So uh, I don't know if we've got them here, but uh, we've had already uh, chapter 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Is our friend going to give way? There we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so we don't drift away. Listen. Oh, chapter 3, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Listen. Chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. Listen. And here again, chapter 5, verse 11, you are sluggish of hearing, and that is a problem. Tonight's not the sermon to fall asleep in, okay? You'd just be a bit embarrassing. Everyone will think you're a slug. So don't do that. You're, uh, okay, what's he saying here? What is his, um, what is his point? Well, um, the, the, uh, the writer has just introduced chapter 5, verse 10, the idea that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And presumably, even his audience back then, none of them, none of them are thinking, oh, brilliant, that's just what I love to think about. High priests called Melchizedek. There's nothing more I'd rather hear. Presumably, then, just as now, people are saying, hmm, a sermon on Melchizedek. Hmm, hmm. Can't we just have one on God is lovely? Or how to be content? Or how we should always be peaceful in the Christian life? or uh, how to be wealthy, or something like that. A sermon on Melchizedek? Hmm. Hmm. Not so excited about that. To which he says, oh, I'd love to tell you more about this, but the problem is you're slugs. That's the problem. This is going to be really hard to explain to you all about Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Not because it's complicated. It's not very complicated. Just because you're not very bright, spiritually speaking. It's nothing academic. But spiritually, you need to grow up and listen. So here are two tests he gives us to see if you're a slug or not. So uh, uh, verse 12. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. Okay, if you've been a Christian for a few years and you can't explain the basics of the faith, you're sluggish, he says. You should be able to do that. Really? To be able to open a Bible, open a gospel account and just explain some of the basics of the faith to someone? You really ought to be able to do that, he says, if you can't. What's going on with your hearing? I'm worried for you if you can't do that. You should be able to teach a bit. And then the second little test is verses 13 and 14, what you're eating. So you need milk. Not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now he's getting a bit more punchy here. You're a slug and a baby. I mean, he's being slightly rude to his audience, isn't he? Uh, in one sense, you could say, but you get his point. Newborn babies drink milk. That's what they do. Uh, and then, whatever it may be, nine months, you start to introduce some mush, uh, or six months, maybe, some hopeless mush, and then, uh, earlier than that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, so six months. Uh, bad parents. Um, but, you know, six months, you introduce some mush, and up it goes, and up it goes. Now, it's fine when you're a newborn baby to drink milk. If all you're drinking when you're five years old is milk, you've got a problem. If you go to university and all you ever eat and consume is milk, you're a saddo. And probably skinny and not very healthy as well. And that's his point. 
If you've been a Christian just a, a little while, a few months, a year or something, of course you're just understanding the basics of the faith. If you've been a Christian five years and you have no appetite for understanding more of the work of Jesus Christ, that's odd. You've been a Christian a decade and no great appetite. You just dabble around in basic truths. You're a weirdo, spiritually speaking. What are you doing, age 18, acting like a newborn baby? That's odd. He says, he doesn't do that. So verse 14, how do you move on to solid food? Solid food is for the mature, verse 14, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Or to put it more simply, question, how do you become mature? Answer, you constantly apply God's word to your life. And live it out to distinguish good from evil. So to become mature in the Christian life, verse 14, you constantly use God's word to decide what is right and what is wrong. So as we hear a sermon tonight or somewhere else, somewhere else in the week or a Bible study, whatever it may be, there's a choice being made. It's not a cognitive choice, it's a moral choice. I hear God's word, I either use it to shape my life to become more godly, righteous, and I'll grow to maturity, or I just think, wow, 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 what was all that about? I don't care. And I'm becoming a slug. And that's a choice. But those who hear the word of God and use it to distinguish good from evil, as they make moral decisions, will grow. You grow maturity by hearing, understanding, living. It's not enough to know stuff. It's how you live it out. Living righteously, knowing good from evil. So don't be a slug, he says. By contrast, chapter 6, verse 1, let's push on. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. Now, I'd kind of hope that someone goes, oh, at that point, because... Part of our sort of vision statement as a church is that we grow together in repentance and faith. Is he saying you move on from those things? No. He's just saying build on them. Think of it this way. Some of these are the, uh, the, the, the big skyscrapers, the shards, etc. of the world that go up in the city or, or, or Canary Wharf. They spend months, you know, 12 months just digging and laying foundations. 12 months and nothing seems to happen above the ground. And lay the foundations. And if you're in the office next to them, it's horrible. Um, but what you could do, you have a choice then at the end of 12 months. You could then say, well, that was fun. Let's go and dig foundations elsewhere and do the whole thing all over again. That'd be a waste. Or you could say, let's build on these foundations. Let's move on from the foundations to actually build a structure that people can work and live in. And that's his point. When he says, let's leave, let's not lay again a foundation. You need anything new. You just need to build on repentance and faith. Grow to maturity. Let's keep going. So don't be sluggish hearers, is his big idea in one sense. Don't be sluggish hearers. Train yourself to grow in maturity. Hear the word of God. Respond to it. Share it with other people. Try and teach it. Make moral decisions on the basis of what you hear. But don't just go, "Mm, you're a slug. So don't be sluggish hearers.
Secondly, and here's the punch of it, because, verses 4 to 8 of chapter 6, it's impossible to restore those who fall away. Now, here are real thunderbolts. Okay, there's no hiding that. Verse 4. It is impossible for those who, five things, for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted in the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Okay, question. Can a Christian fall away? Answer, no. But some who declare themselves to be Christian, even believe themselves to be Christian, have in some senses experience of being a Christian, will fall away. But they never were. So verses 4 and 5 are not describing a Christian, but they are describing someone who has spent time in a Christian church, professed faith and thought they were. Let me give you three reasons uh, why I think that's the case. I mean, there are many more we can give, but to my mind, here are the three big ones. The first is this. All these phrases have a background in the book of Exodus. And you know that throughout Hebrews, that's been in the frame, chapters 3 and 4, constant references, don't be like the Exodus crowd. You know, they're wandering through the wilderness and they died there. Don't be like them. Well, this the wilderness crowd, all these phrases occur in the book of Exodus. So uh, those who left Egypt, escaped Pharaoh, went through the Red Sea, they were enlightened. That is, they were led by a pillar of fire through the wilderness. They received the heavenly gift. That's how manna, the bread that falls from heaven is described. They shared in the Spirit's work amongst them through Moses, the prophet. They tasted the goodness of God's word. We've had that already in the book. They saw the powers of the coming age. That's all. They saw signs, wonders, miracles. They saw the ten plagues. They saw the Red Sea parted. And yet we've been told already that generation, even though they experienced all these things, weren't truly believers. So all that language is being picked up and used here. Or perhaps more simply, here's a second reason, the metaphor that's given in verses 7 and 8. Let me read verses 7 and 8 again. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it's farmed, receives the blessing of God. That's land number one. Land number two. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it'll be burned. You see that the picture is not, there is one land, and uh, for for the first five years it's quite good, and then it turns bad. Not the picture. The picture is two different lands. Rain falls on the same, same rain falls on two different lands. One is worthless, one is good. It's not that the land was good and goes bad. They always stay the same thing. It's not that you are a Christian and then give it up. No one does that. It's that they appear to be, but never were. And the third reason, I mean, which is just a cross-reference, in, um, it's what the rest of the Bible says. Jesus is as clear as anyone. So Matthew chapter 7, Jesus puts it this way. Some will prophesy and cast out demons in my name and do mighty works in my name. But, says Jesus, I will say, I never knew you. 
Jesus says there'll be a group of people who do extraordinary things and call themselves Christians. They may well be ministers, world-famous leaders in the Christian church. could do all sorts of things. But they give up the faith, and Jesus says, I never knew you. Not, I used to know you, but then you turned your back on me. Not, I knew you for a while, but then we lost touch. I never knew you. Never. It was never real. So do you see these verses, verses 4 to 8? They're describing people who professed that they were Christians, but never really were. Some will be deluded, he says. Uh, Verse 6, question, why is it impossible to bring some people back to repentance? Answer, well, nothing's impossible for God, but they don't want to be brought back. Verse 6, if they fall away, it's impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. Why? Because to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Because they don't want anything to do with Jesus anymore. And the fact that they said, oh, I was a Christian, but now I'm not, does no honor, brings no honor to Jesus. And they don't want to. Jesus, God can do what he wants, but it's impossible to bring back people who don't want to be brought back, he says. So don't be sluggish, hearers, because you'll drift into unbelief. That's how you'll go. Hear the voice of Daddy calling to the child in the forest. Listen to me. Will you please, please listen to me? No, Daddy, I'm not sure I will. Okay, can I spell it out more clearly? If you don't listen to me... You will lose any assurance of being a Christian. You'll wander away completely and you may die in the forest. She still doesn't listen and so he starts to shout at her. And that's what's going on here. These are thunderbolts that are being sent or written. And God is shouting. But again, they're the shouts of a father who says, I love you and don't want to lose you, is what we've got in these verses. It's impossible to restore those who fall away again. Last thing though, verses 9 to 12. So, don't be sluggish. Fix your hope on Jesus. Verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. Wow, well that's a bit more cheerful, isn't it? Um, you know, you're a bunch of slugs, so your, your hearing is terrible. You might fall away and be destroyed eternally. But I don't think so. I think you're going quite well, actually. You know, um, you know what's going on here? Dear friends, it's the only time in the letter he uses that phrase, dear friends. Why is the writer so confident? Well, verse 10, God's not unjust. God won't forget the work you've done, your work and the love you have shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. Look, you're, you know, you've got issues. (laughs) Your hearing is terrible, your behavior is terrible in some ways, but I do look upon you and think you're serving one another. I'm really encouraged by that, he says. And God judges rightly. So keep on serving. But the spiritual highs, the spiritual experiences of verses 4 and 5, sharing the Spirit, tasting the Word of God, tasting the powers of the age to come, they're no guarantee of genuinely being saved. A much better marker of how you're going as a Christian is, am I serving people? Are the experiences come and go? And this week you might think, I feel really close to God. 
and next week, I'm not sure I do feel so close to God, and that's normal. They come and go. But are we actively serving other people? That's a much better mark of whether the Lord is at work in your life. And not what you've done in the past. See the end of verse 10. Continue. Continue to help. Continue to help them. And then here, oh, let me ask you again as a question. Okay, so how, I'm sat here, how can I have assurance that I'm a genuine Christian? Gives two things, verses 11 and 12. First is diligently serve others. So verse 11, we want each of you to show the same diligence that you've done to the very end in order to make your hope sure. Keep serving others. If it's costly, you really know there's something going on in your life. So think of yourself in, in their situation or modern day China. I got an email from someone this week. Um, uh, uh, it's sort of, it's cyclical, isn't it, in, in China? So it seems persecutions of the church. Anyway, I was told uh, one minister, pastor had uh, been imprisoned uh, um, uh, and a number of his church had gone to visit him. Now that's quite a big deal, isn't it, then? Your pastor's been imprisoned for being a Christian and you've said, I'm with him and gone to visit him. That's quite a big deal. And that's the sort of thing in Hebrews chapter 10 we read of them doing, going to visit people in prison. That's a big deal. Because you know it's costly. So when you serve other people in a manner which may well be costly, cost you your freedom, certainly cost you your comfort, cost you your time. When you put yourself out, that's in, be encouraged by that. That's a mark of God's spirit at work in your life. In verse 11. Keep going with that. Keep going with that. Show that diligence. Don't lose heart in doing good. Do not lose your, do not lose your zeal for doing good and serving other people. Keep going. It'll give you great assurance. That's verse 11. And the second uh, encouragement to have assurance, verse 12. We do not want you to become lazy, sluggish, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Keep trusting the promises of God. Am I, am I, golly, do you know, sometimes I wonder if I really am a Christian. Are you serving other people? Keeping going without a cost to yourself? That's a mark of God's spirit. But above all else, are you trusting the promises of God? And in particular, the work of Jesus Christ. For example, just flick it just over to 619. Here's a wonderful promise. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus Christ has entered heaven. We know that he's there, we believe that he's there, and we believe he'll take us to be there. If you have that hope, I have great confidence. Come boldly to the throne of grace again. See, this is the point of the dad calling to the little girl in the woods. He says, I am in the place of safety and joy, and you will be with me if you keep on listening. You will be with me. Fix your ears on my voice. To change the metaphor, listen to me. Okay, two things, then we're done. A minor point and a major point. Uh, a minor point. This is quite blunt. It's quite full on. It's unsettling, and some people find it that way. Now, sometimes we need to recognise that is the loving thing to do. Sometimes our culture is so obsessed with not offending anyone, not upsetting anyone, 
we don't say anything that needs to be heard. And we've got to get over that. Because friendships need to be honest with one another. I was, uh, had a funny little exchange on this. Um, back in August, I was out in Sydney. Uh, I was asked to review someone's talk. He said, can you give me some feedback on that? I said, well, I, I don't know you. Uh, we've, we've barely met. I don't know how it compares to what you normally do. Uh, I'm not really in a place to, to do that for you. He said, oh, don't be such a pom. Just, you know, this is, <laughs> you know, this is Australia, mate. We just give it to one another blunt. I said, okay. So I told him what I thought. And he said, I was a bit brutal. Um, <laughs> yeah, because... We can say, give it to me straight, but no one really likes it. He did say, I think I'm grateful. Um, <laughs> wasn't entirely sure. Uh, but in one sense, that, that is a mark of friendship, to be honest with one another. Remember the sort of, one of the drumbeats of the book of Hebrews is, let us make sure that no one falls. Leave no man behind. Let us make sure that no one falls. And part of that is, look, I'm worried for you. Part of that is, I know, it'll vary upon your temperament. For some, it's, can we just go and sit and have coffee or dinner for an hour and I explain my anxieties carefully to you? And for others, it'll be, you're being an idiot. Stop it. And, you know, and temperamentally that works for some and not for others. And, you know, you know your friends and work out what they need. Okay. But minor point, sometimes we need blunt warnings. And you and I need to deliver them if we're good friends. Major point. The writer is concerned that if you're sluggish of hearing, you'll stop being a Christian eventually. See how the passage works? If you're sluggish of hearing, you'll just become a slug who gives up on the faith. That's the arc of the passage. How do you know? I mean, even this writer hedges his bets a little bit. So chapter 5, 11, oh, you're sluggish of hearing. Chapter 6, verse 9, oh, I'm confident of how you're going. How, you know, why does he give both? Because, I don't know, it's hard to know what you need to hear. So if I'm going to put it this way, I don't know what you need to hear tonight. I don't know individually if you need to hear. You are sluggish of hearing. You're not growing as a Christian. You've been in the same place for a number of years. You need to grow up. You need to grow up for your sake and for the sake of the church. Do you need to hear that? I don't know. Or maybe you need to hear, no, keep going. You're going great. Now, partly is how we hear things as a temperament. So here's my final thought, if I'm going to put it like this. If, if you hear these words and think to yourself, I find that a bit unsettling. And you can experience a heavenly gift, a spirit, enjoy the word of God and yet never be a Christian. I find that a bit unsettling. If you find it a bit, if you find Hebrews 6 a bit unsettling, good. Good. Because you're not, you're hearing the word of God. Good. If you're unsettled by these verses, I think you're in good health and I'm not worried about you. If you hear these verses and think, whatever, never really understood that passage, didn't understand it tonight, probably means something else. And it has no relevance to what I'm doing tomorrow. Worry. <coughs> worry. I am worried. If you sit here tonight and think, well, that's nothing to do with me, and it was boring. Worry. Worry for yourself and worry for your friends. Okay, do you see? How are you hearing the word of God? Sensitivity to God's word matters.
If you're worried, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's gone ahead and he is an anchor for your soul. If you're not bothered by any of this, be worried. And I don't know which it is. Hear the, hear the word of the Lord that you need to hear for you. Let's pray together. Our loving Father, these are serious words that you give us. We do want to give you thanks again that you're a Father who knows what we need. And because you love us, you don't hold back on words that we need. You don't want spoilt, indulged brats in your kingdom, nor do you want insecure, nervous, anxious believers in your kingdom. You want children who are mature, as your kids, as your children. So, Father, would we hear your word rightly, whether we need to hear the rebuke, whether we need to hear the encouragement again to look to Christ, would we hear it rightly? So we're not sluggish, but we push on to maturity and we have a full assurance in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.